Welcome to Garden People with your host, Jill Sowards of Violet Air Studio. Join us each season as we speak with your favorite garden people, designers, florists, growers, naturalists, chefs, artists, and more about how gardens have shaped their lives and informed their work today with seasonal tips, expert recommendations, and lots and lots of plants. To learn more, go to our website at violetairstudio.com. You'll find episode information, our seasonal journal, class list, and seed offerings. Everything you need to start your own garden story. Today, I welcome Amanda Liu and Mia Westfall of Studio Mondine, a floral design studio based in San Francisco, California. Mondine's work is multifaceted and always a reflection of the group's deep appreciation of the natural world. Whether it's finding inspiration for a bridal bouquet in the weeds growing around the wedding venue, or puzzling through ways to make travel to that venue the most environmentally sustainable, the team works with admirable care and infectious joy. They lead by example and educate through beauty, and they might just invite you to eat the centerpiece. Amanda and Mia, thank you both so much for being here. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, us too. <laughs> so Amanda, I was wondering if you could begin by describing the development of Studio Mondine, how it evolved into the practice it is today. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Well, the studio really had quite humble beginnings. It started really as a flower exploration between two friends. My co-founding creative partner, Ivanka Matsuba, had married into a Japanese-American family, and her mother-in-law was quite highly trained in the art of tea ceremony. And if you know the development of Ikebana and tea ceremony, they're sort of interlinked. And Ivanka and I, in our own lives, were sort of minimalist. So the Ikebana style of arranging and the practice and the philosophy, and just the, the really academic core of Ikebana was quite attractive to both of us. So that was the that exploration between the two of us. We'd actually met freelancing at a couple of event floral studios. And so naturally something that was more of an off-the-clock exploration became something that pervaded our flower practice. And then it became something a little bit bigger. We started doing more productions and doing more destination events. And then I think the biggest or the newest chapter of Studio Mondine actually incorporates a lot more people. So I say that it's blossomed into a bigger and more thoughtful design and production house, simply because we have five full-time people now with us that are adding their expertise and their interests. Mia on our team here gets to bring her sustainability background into what we do. And I think that that really helps position us well in the luxury event floral space. What I'm hoping to see is for us to step into what I consider the new luxury, which is sustainable event design. Yeah. And would you mind describing a little bit more about the Ekibana philosophy and a little bit for those who aren't familiar with it? Yeah, sure. Well, there are many different ways to approach Ekibana arranging. If you look even just at your local directory, you'll see there are quite a few different schools that are still very active. And these are schools that are quite old. But at its core, Ikebana is about connecting with nature. And Ikebana literally translates into making flowers dance. So there is something poetic about capturing that oneness with nature through a floral arrangement. You'll see common themes that connect to simplicity, naturalness, balance. You'll also see that a lot of the early practitioners of Ikebana were looking to reconcile their place in the world. And so there is quite a bit of a study around the heavens, earth, and man, and how all of those kind of converge into what we have here. Yeah, that's wonderful. 
And Mia, can you share how you joined Studio Mundine and then also maybe the current offerings of the studio? Yeah, of course. I joined Studio Mundine last summer after graduating from the University of San Diego and studying environmental studies and sustainability. Amanda and I got connected through a mutual friend in the industry, and I just feel so lucky that I got to join this team and see how much it's grown even in the last year. Our current offerings were really positioned in the luxury floral event space, but we also do a lot of education pieces surrounding event production, keep on a design, and we kind of branching towards education around sustainable event production. And then as well, we do a lot of editorials, events, all over the country, it's all over the world. Yeah. Wonderful. And Amanda, would you mind also sharing the meaning behind the name Mondine, how you came to use that moniker? Oh, sure. Yeah. So the Mondine or Mondina would be a singular right. <laughs> woman. Mondine were a group of women in Italy who carried out the work of weeding rice fields. They were working class women and they were notable for their rebelliousness and their spirit and also their song. So if you just take a look at some of the beautiful photography and coverage of those women, you'll see that they're, they look like they're having a great time, even though they're doing backbreaking work. We also joked, too, that we would leave our families each season, each summer to pick weeds. And that's because you'll see a lot of these types of feral botanicals in our flower work. You'll see it mixed in with more choice blooms, which is garden roses and peonies that we've got um, wild mustard in the background or something to that, to that effect. Yeah, yeah. And how did you come to this work? What was the journey to flowers for you and working in this space? Well, my first love and I guess my enduring passion is foods, actually. So I began arranging flowers as a hostess for dinner parties. Then the flowers started to become the main event. I found myself spending more and more time working on the centerpieces <laughs> and all those details. I was lucky enough to cultivate my first garden in Healdsburg, California. And if you're familiar with that region, it's such fertile land. It's ancient seabed, I believe. So the soil is so rich and it's quite warm. You don't have the types of problems you have in San Francisco because of the fog. So I was able to grow things such as Tirinodello peppers from seed, just yeah. throwing them into the ground. <laughs> so the Healdsburg Garden was such an education. The only flowers I actually grew, though, were edible ones, and the rest were fruits and veggies. Yeah. <laughs> I do love a really pretty salad. So one thing that I would like to do is cultivate a garden at the studio. I had a little pet project called Salad Mondine, where I was just showcasing the lunch salads we would make from the garden. Sweet. <laughs> That's wonderful. What made you interested in planting a garden in the first place? Was that something that you had always done in your youth or did you find your way there in a different route? Well, the garden in Healdsburg was connected to a restaurant farm operation. So we were all sort of learning together. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a pretty exciting time. The chef's wife was in charge of the farm and she was coming from a gardening background and then all of a sudden had this massive property to cultivate and so you know we went kind of row by row and she wanted to also grow flowers for the restaurant so it was an interesting sort of education to see what grows well as far as the decorative flowers go and then edible things fruits veggies and also edible flowers garnishes especially that could make their way onto plates yeah and Mia what made you interested in floristry and this work 
as after being trained in a sustainability or educated in kind of sustainability? Yeah, well, I've always been really interested in naturalness and environment and even floral design since I was really little. I've had a lot of formal design practice, but I've designed for family parties or gifts for one another or even just for myself forever, as long as I can remember, really. And gardening is also a way of forming these natural landscapes that you get to tend to in a similar way that for floral design is, but just on a much smaller scale. I was really lucky to have school gardens in every school that I went to from kindergarten all the way through college. And those programs enriched me so much that I actually wrote my college admissions essay on the importance of gardens and green spaces to my well-being and to the importance of understanding your food and getting your hands dirty and working in natural spaces. So I think all of those came together to my desire to work in floral design. And after graduating last year, I just thought there was no better time to explore that and kind of formalize my interest in design and natural spaces. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. It it seems like a perfect sort of marriage with Mondine philosophy. And what I perceive of it, I actually had a question for you, Amanda, (laughs) which is, do you have a guiding principle or philosophy either when you started the studio or as it's developed today? Yeah, there's definitely been an emergent philosophy, especially with all of the new energy in the studio and all of the different perspectives that are brought with the new core team. I would say that above all else, we are looking to cultivate a deeper connection with nature. And so you'll see that sensitivity in our work especially on the event side, I think it's a little bit too easy to just plop flowers down on a table and call it a day. It takes a little bit more work to dig into the surrounding environment, whether that's the built landscape or what's growing along the perimeter of a property and really look to those cues to guide the the tabletop design or the ceremony design or the bouquet design. And that's something that I hope we can sort of showcase more. It can be a bit challenging to do with respect to the seasons simply because we're working year round. So what you're facing in winter may not necessarily work with what a client has envisioned for their winter wedding. Right. You know, so there is a little bit of push and pull. If we were purely on our own, if we weren't doing client facing work, then I think that the flower work you come you'd see coming out of our studio would look very different. Interesting. That being said, as best as we can, we're looking to guide our clients to that type of a philosophy or an appreciation of nature as well. Yeah. I think that there's a fear of when you go sustainable or local, that things start to get a little bit burlap and mason jar yeah. and weedy wild, right? <laughs> Funky and holes in the leaves and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's, that's sort of where we come in is we're bringing a more editorial eye to the space and showing that you can make some really incredible and contemporary or just sort of compelling arrangements using what is common and what is readily available around you and what is beneficial to the earth and what is supportive of the community of growers around you as well. Mm -hmm. And can you give an example of how you navigate that, you know, when a couple says we want all white roses. I mean, I think probably they come to you with an understanding of sort of what you do, but they also might have a picture from a different season and then want to overlay it, right? So how do you kind of guide them a little bit? Yeah, that's a really good question. 
Well, you can imagine that most clients are going to come to us, regardless of the season, asking for peonies right. and roses. <laughs> yeah. And so what we try and tap into is, well, what is it about those particular flowers that you're drawn to? Is it the coloring? Is it the blousiness? Is it the structure? Is it the geometry of an arrangement? You know, we, we try and unpack if it's form, if it's color, if it's texture, if it's kind of a sensation that you want to capture. And then what we do on our side is, and this is maybe the most challenging part, is look for the right seasonal substitution, the right local substitution to capture the energy of what it was that they were drawn to initially. And that's why I say it's really exciting to be in event floral work because no two events are the same. Even if they are happening in the same week of the year, year over year, we're going to have very different flower recipes uh, written because of working with that sensitivity to the seasons and chasing the season, really. Yeah, I have a question for both of you. Do you have any private garden space now that you are drawing from either just for your own self or that you actually can draw from for your arrangements or even inspiration? Amanda, do you want to go first? Sure, yeah. Well, I did have a, a garden that has gone a bit uh, fallow simply <laughs> <laughs> because I have a five-week-old newborn. I think most of my garden practice is now uh, my hothouse plants. Mm-hmm. The humidity is at 60% and it's constantly 76 degrees in my home. So it seems like uh, the, the plants are doing really well. Yeah. I will say because we are, our studio is actually at historic art space called the farm. What we're trying to bring back is the farm function. So Mia has been so instrumental in this, in corralling all of the different artists and makers in the studio compound to work on a garden together. Okay. So maybe Mia, you can talk to yeah. <laughs> what's going on with the garden there. Yeah, that's our current endeavor. I just planted some seedlings yesterday, so hopefully those do well. By the time we already put them in the ground. Yeah, we're just working on using the space that we already have that's been forgotten, I would say, and trying to bring it back to life. And both plant stuff, for flowers we can supplement with local product or native plants, and then also having some fruits and vegetables for us to enjoy as well and just bring back that actual connectivity of nature where we're truly working with it every day and then having more connection to where our flowers and food and plants are all coming from. Yeah. Will that be your garden space or do you also have something separate from your work life? Unfortunately, San Francisco apartments don't give you a lot of garden (laughs) space. I do have quite a large house plant collection as well as some herbs. I'm always trying to save my vegetable clippings and put them in a jar of water and see if fruits come up and then plant those. So I'm always trying to find a way to be growing something in my apartment and space is quite limited. Yeah. But yeah, this garden space will be definitely more rigorous of a garden and quite excited about it. That's great. What were the seedlings that just went in? Quite a few. I tried to have a big variety just in case some of them didn't work out, but a lot of um, lettuces, Asian leafy greens, um, a few herbs, a few marigold varieties, carrots, beets, etc. A lot of different types of plants. Great. And what is your weekly or daily nature, if not, you know, outside garden practice? Although now I guess you have the space too. Yeah, I love to go on walks. I'm really thankful to have so many green spaces in the form of parks around my neighborhood. 
So I'm always trying to get out there at least a few times a week and spend an hour just admiring everything that's around me in such an urban environment. And then, yeah, just tending to my house plants and herbs and various things that show up in the studio. We usually have a lot of, <laughs> but sometimes we use live plants in our designs and then we have the pot of plant left over. So our studios usually filled with lots of cool live plants as well that I get to tend to. So I find a way to be around plants. That's great. And Amanda, you're sort of tending to your newest seedling already. <laughs> so <laughs> little, it's a little time for some break, but are you, I guess you will be able to jump in and enjoy the farm, the actual farm, once it starts blooming. Yeah, that's my hope. My partner and I have been at the studio compound. He's been here longer. He's been here almost 13 years. And so for us to sort of be the next wave of caretakers of the farm and really reinvigorate the space is very exciting, especially for our son. I, you know, just to provide some background on where the studio is located, there is a charter school here. We have five families that live and work here, both live and work here full time. We've got architects, illustrators, ceramicists, all sorts of kooky characters that are just hanging around San Francisco and converge at the farm. So it's pretty exciting to see how this will come together. It's largely very collaborative and we have a lot of visual artists too. So I think it'll be really beautiful. That's my hope at least, it'll be a beautiful experiment. And everyone wants a little bit of something else. So some mm -hmm. people are more into flowers, some are more into cultivating food. We have a photographer who's really interested in peppers, and I, I hate to break it to him, but I don't think we're going to be able to grow any peppers in San Francisco. <laughs> but yeah, what's been exciting is we're going to have this sort of wraparound farm experiment, yeah. right, where we live and work. That's so cool. What a wonderful space. Yeah. And Amanda, is this was sort of the involvement in nature something that was present in your childhood, or is that something that you kind of came to later in life? A touch. I realized now a couple of core memories I have are of visiting the garden center with my mom. Mm -hmm. She stayed at home with the two of us. And so her type of relaxation involved cultivating a very small garden in our front yard. And then I came to it more as an adult when I started cultivating my own gardens. And just, I really feel it now, especially being cooped up for a couple of weeks inside with a newborn. Every time we make that mad dash outside of our apartment, it's so thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> just a <laughs> tiny bit of green space really is. <laughs> We're walking around the city streets of San Francisco and I'm looking at a redbud tree and it feels like a revelatory experience. Yes. <laughs> so I think, yeah, there is something probably very important about being outside and nature, even in these like small sips for me and for, for a lot of us. I'm actually quite sad because this would be prime mushroom hunting time, something I used to do. It's a little bit harder to push a stroller up a hillside yeah. <laughs> and be on hands and knees. So I'm looking to, to get back into mushroom hunting in subsequent years, maybe with a little helper. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm in such awe of all the mushroom hunters. I think it's such a yeah, wonderful, it just has a fun way to engage with the, with the world. And also I think it has such a, a really it's an intimate seasonal experience that also kind of takes in the history, you know, the history of, was there a wildfire? Was it the, you know, heat, the rain, whatever the sort of pieces, it's a really cool connection. And mm -hmm. I was curious, did you ever have any pushback from family or friends with your interest in the gardening world and, and eventually floristry? Was there ever sort of a, you know, 
we've been talking with some of the other guests, who many of whom had a moment of sort of, why don't you get a real job? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I was waiting for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. My poor immigrant parents. So they came to America in the 80s and they worked their butts off. They share one high school diploma between the two of them and were able to put their three children through college. <laughs> and I think that for this sort of a career to shake out on the other side of all that effort and sacrifice was really, at the beginning, about a decade ago, it was really disheartening for them. Yeah. And now that they see more, they see, you know, okay, this is viable. You're still doing it. Um, and it seems to be making you happy and all of that. I think that they've probably softened over time yeah. and they see the value in it as well. I mean, they're the ones who are hiking in the woods every weekend sending me photos. Okay. So. I always blame them. I always tell them that, you know, it was their fault for making the world such a big place for me as a young person that I would pursue this kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, although I'm pretty early in my career, I, yeah. I definitely have already felt that pushback in high school. I was the garden manager of my school's garden and I was so obsessed with that role that I was like, I'm going to start a farm. I'm not going to go to school. I'm going to open up a farm. My family was like, hmm. okay so you know I settled for environmental studies but I do that was another really big passion and I've come full circle to incorporate gardening and natural work back into it and now they my parents are like okay wow this is very viable really interesting and super cool that you get to incorporate all your loves into one spot yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you wanted to open a farm and now you work at the farm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's true. I think, Amanda, especially, you were very much at the beginning of kind of the, you know, floristry has always been a viable form of employment, but I think making it this kind of a combination of sort of a really creative endeavor and the sustainability aspect, it has so much, it's bringing in so many different issues that I think maybe 10 years ago, weren't being recognized in the same way. And now it, it's almost mm-hmm. seems like it's a model kind of for a lot of other industries. I would say, yeah, there's, I would say that also it's Mia who joined our team and reinvigorated that sustainability focus for me. We actually share an environmental studies or environmental science background from school. I did environmental economics. Mm-hmm. So to have a couple of those conversations over lunch, you know, she's fresh out of school and just brought such a, a scholarliness to what we do. And it's such an integrity, too, with the sustainability work that I felt was sorely missing in events. And I've been in events for you know almost a decade. And events, as they are, kind of sort of business as usual, can be quite harmful to the spirit when you see how much trash is generated, when you see how much carelessness is at play. And when you think about the, the issues around environmental and social justice, it can be a bit disheartening to be in the industry for so long yeah. and feel like nothing's changing. So to have this new energy and to have the support, and I understand that it's a tremendous privilege to be able to have the support and the energy to do what we're doing and trying to create the best practices, sustainable event florals, it feels like the right work to be doing. Yeah, definitely. Well, that reminds me of your recent environmental impact report. I don't think I've heard of many, many businesses doing that unless they're required to. And I thought it was such a, a wonderful project. And so Mia, would you mind sharing how that developed and what the findings were? Yeah. So like Amanda said, we had a lot of conversations over lunch about how disheartening it can be to see the amount of waste that comes out of a beautiful event. But in a 24-hour span, you know, you'll collect 
hundreds of pounds of trash and compost, etc. And there was no reconciliation for that waste or impact that you're having. So we thought we would take it upon ourselves to audit a business as usual year with all of our events and editorials and calculate how much our team was traveling to and from these events or how much floral waste or other waste we were, you know, putting together at the end of an event or how much hard goods we were purchasing and all these different categories that came together to create an impact report. It's still a work in progress. There's a lot of information and lack of transparency in the supply chain of flowers that we are trying to gather information on in the most polite and efficient (laughs) way possible, as well as gathering all the resources from the many amazing people that we really couldn't do this without, such as Gather Flora and all the other local flower vendors we've worked with across the United States and all the different compost companies that have realized this waste issue and started around the country as well. It's been a lot of work, but very exciting and scary and nerve-wracking at the same time. Yeah, I'm excited for this next year. We have some very vigorous goals that we put in place to help mitigate our impact, such as having at least 50% of compost after our events by 2024, using at least 40% of local product in our events by 2024. So those are the things we're working on and focusing on. Great. And when I interviewed Hannah Brandon of Gather Flora, she mentioned how Studio Mundine was already kind of doing a lot of things. I think maybe not, you know, prior to making a full report and rolling out those goals, but already had little kind of hacks almost that you were using. And so I was wondering if you could share anything that you've already incorporated that you think others could easily adopt. Well, I think that sustainability needs to make sense from a business perspective for it to be pursued in earnest. It can't just be sort of like a nice to have. It needs to be necessary to your business operation and needs to be beneficial to your bottom line to get people to really make the wholesale leap to working in a more sustainable way. And so one thing that I've talked with Hannah about and other local farmers is doing a little bit more planning as bulbs and as seeds are going into the fields. I sort of want to know what you've ordered and if I can pitch more of that coming down the line. So say you've got a certain color of tulips that you're planting in excess, or maybe they were slightly cheaper per bulb, and so you ordered a ton more. That's something that I can incorporate into the design pitch for my client who has a March or an April or a May wedding. And then we can be able to bake in those efficiencies at the farm level and then also at the studio level if we can figure out a way to work together to minimize waste process efficiency i think is going to be key to making this work for farms and for designers especially in big metro areas that are really expensive san francisco mm-hmm. being you know one of the most expensive places to do business and to live and to also as you can imagine cultivate a farm right <laughs> use space pretty incredible yeah. the people right the people who do this have very small operations, very thin margins. And so as sustainable as we can make their business, I think that's going to translate into the business practices, the growing practices. Yeah. Some things I think we already do really well is that we're really good at reusing all of our materials Mm -hmm. before we even had our impact report discussion. You know, we have a very full inventory in the back of our studio of all the different vessels that Amanda and her team has collected over the years that 
are high quality, well-made pieces that will last from event to event to event, mm -hmm. as well as using using all of our mechanics, like chicken wire, all the tools, the rigging equipment for hanging installations, etc. And we also have a pretty robust inventory of dried product that we save over time. I think we've already had a mindset of sustainability amongst our team members who are already thinking of asking those questions of why is something being done this way and how can we make it more sustainable or have less of an impact. And that's what made our impact report and all the transitions we've been making so easy is that we've all had that collective idea and questioning process and desire to make changes within our studio and within the industry overall. Yeah, yeah. Well, it reminds me of a recent post you had where you had an arrangement that was backed by some mushrooms maybe that you collected yourself and you mentioned that you would be eating those later. So I thought that was, that was a, definitely an example of reducing, reusing. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. uh, everything on this table will be eaten. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Amanda, where did you learn the mechanics of floristry or was it just sort of a build off the kind of arranging at the restaurant? Well, I worked at quite a few of the studios around the Bay Area, mm -hmm. and everyone had their own approach. About a decade ago is when I started my freelance career, and things were very different then. It was very commonplace to use floral foam, even in the Bay Area. And this is, you know, this is a community that's much more in touch with sustainability mm -hmm. and just minimizing our impact on the environment. And so you can imagine all that microplastic being poured down the drain after every event. It's a little bit disturbing to think about now. And I know that more and more as the stability mechanics become commonplace, the non-foam stability mechanics become more commonplace, then it's easier for designers to work. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that we were working in foam at the very beginning of our studio career because that was available and what we knew. And even just making the choice to stop using floral foam really kind of upended our business operations. When you're using foam, you tend to use fewer flowers. You tend not to have to be so diligent in your packing of flowers because the water isn't sloshing around and destroying the cardboard box that you pack arrangements in. It's not destroying your car either or whatever vehicle you're using to transport things. It also takes less time for designers when they're working in floral foam sometimes because things just kind of stay in place. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be so careful about building up an arrangement for stability. And you also don't have to prep vases as rigorously, right? We're using chicken wire, floral frogs, tape at times, whatever is appropriate for the vessel we're using. Foam, you just, you know, soak and chop and place into an arrangement or into a vessel. And I'm not here to, to say definitely use floral foam because yeah. it's way easier. I'm saying that if you're going to make a choice to do it, it's going to affect the entire production process. Yeah. So be ready for that. And that's something that I think our studio can help fill in for the newer florists. That's why the education component has been so important to our sustainability work as well, because we are modeling other mechanics you can use, different ways that you can create these beautiful designs without having to soak a bunch of plastic in your sink. Yeah. The other piece too, when you move away from foam is that some designs are just not going to be possible. And so you need to be able to have the confidence or courage to say no to clients when they are requesting design that can only really be made with floral foam. Yeah. No, I think that's really helpful because for someone who's not initiated, you might say, well, why doesn't everyone switch? You know, and it's, it's not, mm -hmm. yeah, it's not that easy, especially if you sort of 
like, you know, if you're mid-season and you're thinking about this, you've already kind of priced out a lot of things, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I think that there's not as much of a conversation around that, like what it actually takes to move away from floral foam as an industry. Yeah. We just can, you know, it's we just demonize it without really understanding like, okay, this is how it has helped people. This is how it makes it easier to run a floral event business. And this is the cost. Yeah, definitely. Can you speak a little bit more about the educational offerings that you have right now? Oh, yeah. Well, we've partnered with If I Made. They are a creative learning platform really sort of geared toward wedding professionals. And so that's why our event floral education I guess, package has done really well on their platform. Basically, we cover the art and design of florals. We also talk about the business. As you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about not just building a sustainable operation, but a sustainable business, because that's how we keep our mission going well into the future. We also talk about the production of flowers. That's something that most people don't realize when they get started, especially if you're looking to create flowers for events. You come into it because you love making a centerpiece. You love making bouquets. You love the details. You love working with the flowers. And that really ends up being, I mean, Mia has seen this, it's like 5% of the work. (laughs) The rest of the work is, is truly cultivating the business. It's working with clients, doing all that emailing back and forth with other creative vendors to create the design or to hunt down the business. And then on top of that, once you are of a certain size or of a certain rigor, then you're creating production timelines, you're creating production plans, pack lists. You're also, as your personnel grows, you're looking to support them. And so for us, that looks like packing uh, COVID tests and masks Mm. and snacks and water that can refill their bottles. So there's quite a bit of production detail, production rigor that goes into our events. That's really most of the work, I'd say. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. And when you're trying to work with the seasons, you're trying to work with local product, when you're trying to approach sourcing with the type of rigor that we are, that's another level of detail where you're trying to chase down where was this grown? How far away from our studio? How do we minimize our carbon footprint by carpooling our team Mm -hmm. coming from four different places. So what are all of those types of process efficiencies that are not only going to help our bottom line, but also just be gentler on the earth? Yeah, I know it's a lot to think about when you think about it. And so I'm glad you're, I'm (laughs) glad you're on it. (laughs) I think Hannah said that you have a, you have just a mind that works that way. And I, this sounds true. (laughs) Well, our team really supports this. Yeah. You know, our creative producer, Tiffany has quite the mind for this as well. Mm -hmm. So she's been really instrumental in collecting a lot of the data for us to analyze. So sort of the thing that we're working on this year is improving our methodology for Mm -hmm. accounting for our carbon footprint. Right. And you spoke a little bit earlier about the sourcing reminded me of this, how you kind of draw from the surrounding environment when you're building your pieces. I was wondering, they all seem to have, and and when you said the sort of, you know, the weeds on the verge being kind of incorporated with, you know, peonies or, or something very, you know, a traditional garden flower, it made me think of this kind of, yeah, there is such elegance and really whimsy. There's quirkiness and fun in a lot of your arrangements. And so I was wondering if you can speak a little bit more about how kind of you approach these products after or even while sourcing and how you're kind of combining those to get that flair. <laughs> yeah, well, we're always endeavoring to soften the edges between the event and the environment. Mm-hmm. And so that means that we're spending a lot of time looking with sensitive eye to what's growing at the corners, at the cracks of the building. And we're looking at not just the material, but also 
sort of the colors as they change through the course of a day. That's why a site visit is so instrumental in our work. When we can really be there in person ahead of time and start thinking about, okay, well, this will be in full bloom by the time we're back here again for the event day. How do we play off of that and create sort of a tension in the work as well? I think that incorporating things, materials that are less common can be very exciting, at least for us, because as florists, we comb through these catalogs every week. We have the email blasts of all the flowers that are coming down the line. And really, if I'm being very honest, the flowers that are cultivated for export, the flowers that can travel 10,000 miles, no problem, don't really get my heart beating faster the way mm-hmm. that the things that are foraged or wild or cut from the side of the road kind of delight. Mm-hmm. And that's because there's just more friction that these plants, these botanicals have in their cultivation or, uh, you know, they're not really cultivated most of the time with <laughs> <if> their weeds. <laughs> well, they could be. Someone might have cultivated them. <laughs> One partner is a moss farmer, we say, because he's always watering the cracks. Yeah. The concrete at our studio to get so them off. Someone is cultivating that. Yeah. <laughs> so when we can incorporate those weedy wild bits into the arrangements, pushing them up against these really precious flowers, I think that that's how you create that tension, that that quirkiness, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned mushrooms, but do you have any unsung uh, flower or plant favorites that you look forward to coming each year that are a little bit, a little bit off the beaten path? Off the beaten moss cultivated path. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the grass, dried grasses are a studio favorite. Mia knows because there's an entire rack of dried grass from across the seasons. I love working with that product. Let's see, what else looks really good? Well, there's some really beautiful bamboo in our studio right now, too. I'm not sure if that's going into a new project or it's someone saving it. It was was featured in a previous event, but it's still sitting here. We are saving it for another installation coming down the line. So we wanted to save the stocks to make some sort of architectural piece that's coming in the future. Wonderful. And what about you, Mia? Do you have any favorites? Yeah, I think my all-time favorite is Jasmine Vine. Mm -hmm. And it's something we find all over the Bay Area. It's a very nostalgic flower for me. On my walks to school as a kid and high school, there was these pathways that were just lined with jasmine vine. So it brings a lot of, you know, heartwarming feelings to me. So I always try to incorporate that in my own designs or just bring it into my house whenever it shows up in my backyard. Yeah. Mia and Amanda, do you find time to kind of create work for yourself, either arrangements or work with the plants in a way that's just personal? Yes, (laughs) sort of. On my hikes, I'm the one who tends to collect dried bits and bobs mm-hmm. and put them together. So mm-hmm. the flowers that I tend to arrange for myself end up looking quite goth, <laughs> I always say. It's like a root ball yeah. in a vase. <laughs> I think that when people come over, they're expecting maybe a bit more abundance in the designs, but that's really where my heart is. It's just a tangled knob of stem or branch or root. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Mia? Yeah, I try to. I don't know if it's a very formalized design, but if you count picking stuff and putting it in a vase next to your bed. I think that I'm doing that quite often or even at my studio <laughs> desk. We have a lot of naturally growing flowers around the complex as well that I'm always picking when nobody's looking yeah. and yeah. putting them on my desk and then at home as well, just along my box. I will always trim things and bring them back home, mostly blooming branches in this time of year. Yeah. I'm always surrounded 
those kinds of flowers and I want them in my house. <laughs> that's wonderful. I think that's that's the purest expression. It's just what you put by your bedside or mm-hmm. in your yeah. bathroom. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. For me, Mia, the jasmine is definitely one of my bedside favorites for the same reason. It was always seemed like such a miracle that this like incredibly perfumed, beautiful, delicate thing was like muscling fences over, you know, Seriously. throughout the Bay Area. Yeah. yeah. My backyard, the most prevailing plant is jasmine vine and it's coming over all the different bushes that are just overgrown, but jasmine <laughs> is always on top. Right. And it's like so clearly invasive. And I'm like, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah I was like, don't get rid of it. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and Amanda, so you mentioned your book, Aikifana Unbound, and that was released in September 2020. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the inspiration and what the reader can expect. It's such a gorgeous book. And so I highly recommend it to anyone. And I will definitely include it in the show notes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, the product came together also between friends. We had MK Sadler, a photographer based in LA, Kayla Rawson, a stylist who was based in LA at the time and is now in Portland, Oregon. And then Ivanka, my former co-founding partner and me, we were just creating flowers. The two of them would come up every other month. And so we were able to capture a full year of, more or less a full year of flower seasons, showcasing all the local product. And the book is loosely organized around certain themes or, I guess, topics of discussion, if you will, things that Nikibana arranging tends to focus around. And we were looking to, as neither one of us is formally trained in Nikibana, really reference the work of the schools of thought and types of philosophies that came before us, creating projects that feel contemporary or modern with respect to the tradition of Nikibana. So you'll see uh, fire arrangements that play with some emotion and some contemporary, I guess it would reference other contemporary art, performance. The themes that we tackle in the book include balance, simplicity, naturalness, and movement. And movement. Thank you, Mia. <laughs> she knows. <Yeah. laughs> And so I was wondering, this is not to say that you have to have an, a new book coming out, but um, where do you take inspiration from today as you're working in this season or future seasons? Well, I do. Actually, it's funny you asked about a new book. I was just thinking about how I'd love to make a book for my son. Oh, sweet. I was thinking of starting them young on this. Yeah. Um, there isn't a very robust flower identification book or anything that talks about the topic of garden necessarily for kids. And especially because he's coming from two cultures. Well, I'm Vietnamese, my partner is Filipino, and we were both sort of divorced from the language of our people. Yeah. We were thinking, well, we'd love for our son to be able to identify these flowers, flowers being so important to both of our cultures in both English and Vietnamese or yeah. English and Tagalog. So we're working with an independent publisher, our neighbor at the farm as well, who might be able to help us put something like that together. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> That's yeah. super cool. That's really great. So that would be a wonderful, wonderful offering and so important for him. That's really sweet. And are there any garden books or people or art that you're drawing from these days? Well, I have so many garden books. So if we're looking at uh, flower artists, are you familiar with the work of Azuma Makoto? Mm-hmm, He's yeah. from Japan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think his work is very compelling. And every time I come back to his work, I think, okay, there's something else there. Yeah. It's just, there's more that reveals itself. And even if aesthetically the colors are 
not necessarily like what you would see represented in our work. There's just a sensitivity to the environment and really the conversation between man and flower, or man and nature that comes through in his work is what I find particularly thrilling. Yeah. So I'd say that's a flower artist that I really love. What I really love is the spontaneous nature of the gardens that you'll see around the Mission District, mm-hmm. right? Because we're trying to garden in and farm in the tiniest cracks of a very crowded, bustling part of the city. Yeah. So it's more these emergent gardens that I find really exciting on my stroller walks right now. Yeah. And how are you balancing some form or a little bit of parental leave and maybe some parental balance in your new life? (laughs) Well, I will send a random stream of consciousness type messages through Slack at 3 (laughs) a.m. to the team. (laughs) Or I'll just send a link with no context. (laughs) That's something that's happened. I'm trying to be better about that. But it really is quite challenging. Because my first baby is this business, this studio. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I'm taking it not even day by day, but really moment to moment. Mm-hmm. We'll see. I, the best part is that there is such a wonderful team in place and everyone is so committed to our mission and so smart and just really talented individuals. So that gives me that kind of excitement to come back from leave in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like you have a wonderful team. And I was wondering, you had a mission group of importance to you that I wanted to speak to you a little bit about, which is the support of the AAPI fund. Can you tell a little bit more about that and how you became involved? Oh, yeah, that is just the AAPI community is one I'm part of, and it's one that I'm looking to support in our work. It's also, for me, important to support the marginalized communities in our city and the Vietnamese American population in San Francisco is one that is quite close to me as well. I grew up not too far from here, and so I think about creating resources and uplifting the work of people who look like me. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite simply put. Yeah. We also supported a project for the Vietnamese Community Center in the East Bay mm-hmm. that experienced a devastating fire. Fire is something that I guess is top of mind when you live in the Bay Area, wildfire or otherwise. and. So something we also organize every year is a studio plant and vessel sale. Mm-hmm. That's one way we move through a lot of our inventory that, you know, we're retiring. And we also, as Mia mentioned, collect quite a few specimen on the plant side. We just open it up donation-based or otherwise. And the proceeds of that sale we do annually go to typically wildfire relief. Mm-hmm. What's sort of tragic is that every year there's a wildfire that we can support. Yeah. I wish that there was a year where we could put our donation somewhere else. But yeah, yeah. You know, as it turns out, it's like since we started doing this six years ago, there it has not slowed down. Yeah. The question that I ask all of our guests is, how do you think we can bring more people into the garden, into this space, either florists or growers or even sustainability? Mm, that's a great question. I think for me, it's more about bringing awareness to the food system connectivity. A lot of it boils down to the distance that we or companies create between what you are growing and what you are eating. As a kid, I got to grow my own food every year, either through school or in my own backyard. And that is really what inspired me to do every sort of garden related or nature or flower related thing because of that. Mm -hmm. San Francisco is 
I think, a great example of a city that does understand that connectivity issue and wants to incorporate more community gardens or school gardens and start with children being in those spaces and seeing how almost magical it is to grow your own food, to have your hands be part of something that nourishes the body and the environment. So I think it starts with continued garden education through school. Yeah. Are you familiar with the Edible Gardens? Yes. The founder's book, Lori Krantz, A Garden Can Be Anywhere? Mm -hmm, Yes. Okay. So I think that that is really sort of the corollary we should pull or we should try and shoot for with the flowers. And something that I talk about a lot is outcome neutral design. I think that people get a little bit nervous when they're working with flowers because flowers are expensive. And, you know, when you are put on the spot to design something, it's a deeply creative endeavor. And there's a lot of insecurity that enters that conversation. And what I'm hoping to do when I talk about outcome neutral arranging and also provide the resources to how to create your own floral pieces is to sort of democratize that process Mm -hmm. and free it up for anyone to be able to walk into. I think that's going to be really important to invite people into the garden because the connection to food that Mia and I both share is one way that people start thinking about the natural world. But also when they have something beautiful on the table and they think, hey, I can make that. That's another way that we can reinvigorate that interest in the natural world. And the hope is that we can bring more people into the fold, make it feel like anyone can make a flower arrangement, because I truly think anyone can make a flower arrangement. Yeah. I recently just did a family wedding in which I was in charge of all the flowers and the first time doing it completely on my own. And I, similar to what Amanda's explaining, I did feel a lot of insecurity and lack of confidence of producing something for someone else but the only way that I figured out how to get around that nervousness was to act as if I was doing it just for the sake of designing and for the sake of myself and the creative process and knowing that something beautiful is going to come out of it just because of the beautiful products that were there so Amanda's already created that space for me and it's right on you know on the head for creating that space for everyone else yeah it sounds like a key component, again, is sort of that connection to the product and it being so special, you know, whether it be a local flowers that are purchased locally or something that you're finding and connecting with. Again, that you see the arrangement on the table, realize you can make it and you see it, you know, you see something growing, and you think, oh, maybe that was what was in there. And you sort of, you know, it's like that back and forth kind of, yeah. Amanda, how do you create that safe space, so to speak? Like, how do you make that something that's approachable and achievable and transferable to someone who it might not be, you know, they may not have had the school garden? Yeah, that's sort of the other function that Mia plays as a community manager for our online social channels. I think creating a place of safety for people to share their flower explorations, their flower discoveries is really key to bringing more people into flower arranging and into a natural practice or you know something where they're going into nature and plucking a couple of flowers from their backyard fence and putting it into a vase by their bedside that's really where we want people because once you have the flowers in front of you you know the poetry is all there it's all there for you to experience it's hard to escape really the rapture of flowers and that's not really anything special to the designer it's it's inherent in the flower. It's something that nature has evolved, right, to capture our attention. Flowers, the case for flowers being such. Yeah. So yes, again, creating that sort of supportive and safe environment for all of your kooky ideas and all of your 
kooky arrangements and all the works in progress and all the things that you feel shy about sharing or I guess you don't feel is client ready, but you had to get out of your system. Yeah. <laughs> That's something that happens in the studio, you know, when we have a lot of flowers there and everyone sort of goes for it. Yeah. There's like a camaraderie, you know, when you're figuring out and putting things together. Yeah. Oh, that's so wonderful. Well, thank you both so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you Thanks for having still. us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for listening. Garden People is produced with generous support from our sponsor, Plant Gem. Plant Gem sells unique plants you won't find anywhere else for a garden that reflects your personal style. Find them at www.plantgem.com. As always, thank you for supporting the companies that support this podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left a review as it helps other garden people find us. You'll find links for everything we've discussed in the show notes or on our website. To get early access to our guest list and information about bonus episodes, gardening tips from our guests, and more, sign up for the newsletter at violetearstudio.com.